Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, City Club members, students, educators, and community members joining us today. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. My name is Shreya Chalu, a junior at Beechwood High School and a member of the City Club's Youth Forum Council. Today we are here to discuss sustainable urban futures, navigating economic equality and climate resilience. At the heart of our deliberations in the poignant question, is the poignant question, how can urban development be harnessed as a catalyst for economic empowerment and environmental stewardship? The answer lies in reimagining urban spaces as incubators of innovation, where equi equitable economic opportunities flourish hand in hand with sustainable practices. Today's forum serves as a crucible for the exchange of ideas where diverse perspectives converge to forge a path forward that transcends traditional dichotomies. Our discussion will revolve around the implications of urban development in the future. Our distinguished panelists, experts in their fields, will illuminate the discourse with insights drawn from real-world experiences, offering tangible ideas that can be adapted and scaled to address the unique needs of diverse urban landscapes. Our esteemed guests joining us on stage today are Ben Herring, coordinator of the Cleveland Urban Design Collaborative Making Our Own Space at Kent State University, Patrick Hewitt, Planning Manager of Strategy and Development at the Cuyahoga County Planning Commission, and Terry Schwartz, Director of the Urban Design Collaborative at Kent State University, Cleveland. Our discussion will be moderated by Youth Forum Councilmember Luke Kim, Jr. from Solon High School. Thank you all for joining us today. Hi everyone, my name is Luke Kim and I'm a junior at Solon High School. Today I'm joined in conversation with three wonderful panelists to discuss how Cleveland can promote both economic and environmental interests in urban development. On my immediate left is Ben Herring, the Making Our Own Space Program Coordinator at Kent State University's Cleveland Urban Design Collaborative. Patrick Hewitt, a Planning Manager of Strategy and Development at the Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga County Planning Commission. And Terry Schwartz, the Director of Kent State's Cleveland Urban Design Collaborative. Please, tell us more about yourselves and what you do. Hey, that's all right. That's cool. So I'm Ben, Ben Herring, Clifford Benjamin Herring, but I go by Ben. Mom and dad just had high expectations. Um, and so I live here, work here in Cleveland, um, but we are under the larger umbrella of Kent State University, which you guys may know is just a little bit south of the city. Um, most of our programs working with young people throughout the city, um, ask them what their neighborhoods need, and then we help them design and build it. Um, we use this as a catalyst for talking about big ideas about how we can make urban spaces better, and I really appreciate you guys having, having me today. <laughs> Lost it there. I really appreciate you guys having me here today. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, my name is Patrick Hewitt. I'm a planning manager with the Cuyahoga County Planning Commission. Uh, originally from Warren, Ohio. I live in Cleveland now. Uh, I've been with the Planning Commission for about 10 years. Uh, we're an independent public agency that provides planning services to the communities of Cuyahoga County. Uh, generally, that means master plans, corridor studies, park plans, but uh, we also do a number of countywide studies. One of the pieces that we're working on right now uh, is a transit-oriented development zoning study. Uh, so really thinking about Cuyahoga County as a whole and how we can uh, use planning to progress. 
Um, I'm Terry Schwartz, director of the Cleveland Urban Design Collaborative. We're the outreach division for the College of Architecture at Kent State, and we're just next door. <laughs> We've been here for a while. Uh, this is um, the CUDC's 25th year in downtown Cleveland. Um, back in the day, before I was part of the organization, the idea was that for students studying urban design, it would be more useful to be in the heart of a city. Kent is a lovely community, but um, the Cleveland location gives our students a broader perspective on urbanism and the world. So just down the street, we have graduate students in architecture, urban design, and landscape architecture. Uh, but we also operate a nonprofit urban design practice, and we serve communities throughout about a 12-county region um, on a whole variety of different projects. Um, it changes every day. And as Ben mentioned, one of our really signature programs is our youth initiative, Making Our Own Space. Awesome. So for those in the audience that might not be familiar, what is urban planning, and why should we care about it? Patrick? <laughs> sure, I'm happy to take that one. So I'm an urban planner. <laughs> so urban planning really has to do with the design of cities. Uh, I often like to describe urban planning as it relates to architecture because I think people have an understanding of what architecture is. So if architects design a building, uh, planners tend to design how all of those buildings fit together in a place. So that means thinking about parks. It means thinking about transportation. It means thinking about housing. Uh, so urban planners spend their time thinking about how the community can benefit from all of the development happening around, uh, around them, how we can assist community members in playing a role in what their cities, what their living environment looks like, how it's shaped, uh, and what the amenities are that people need to you know, create an interesting, vibrant uh, place to live. Yeah, can I just add that? Why you should care about planning is maybe because I think deep down most people, a lot of people don't really like surprises. Um, sometimes nice surprises, surprise party for your birthday or whatever, um, can be delightful. But like a surprise where you come home one day and see that next to your little house, someone is building a meatpacking plant. You know, people don't like that sort of thing. Uh, there's a certain kind of predictability and a sense of control over our environment that whether you believe that's real or not doesn't really, you know, kind of matter. But, you know, kind of the idea that we can in some way um, kind of shape uh, the environments that we live in in a way that's predictable and that people feel comfortable making investments because they know their investment won't be undermined by incompatible things maybe happening around it. So when it comes to drafting proposals, what are the most common factors and considerations that you guys face? So I'll, I'll jump in on this one again. Uh, so we, like I said, do uh, master plans, corridor studies, other planning proposals for communities. And generally, we think about a master plan or a planning process with really five phases, which I think helps uh, explain how we approach things. So typically, uh, we start by saying, where are we today? If we're going to do a, a plan for a community, we think about what are the current conditions in that community right now? So we look at things like housing, we look at transportation, we look at parks, the environment, we look at commercial development. Here in Cuyahoga County, we tend to look at, at revitalization areas. Uh, so where are we today? Uh, and then we take some time to think about where do we want to go in the future? We, we take a step back, we talk to community members, we talk to public officials, we say, if you look at your community in 10 years, what might you like to change? What might you like to stay the same? What do you want to protect? But what are the areas maybe where there's change? So what's the vision for the future? The third is then, 
well, let's make some recommendations. What are the things that we can do that will get us to that future? And then we talk about implementation. How are we going to pay for it? Uh, what are the specific steps we need to take? And then we wrap that all up in the, in the fifth phase with uh, the final plan. Uh, so really, it's that spectrum of uh, kind of land uses that we're, we're thinking about. We're thinking about housing. We're thinking about transportation. We're thinking about commercial development. We're thinking about parks. All of those pieces go into the broader idea of a community. Now, that said, there is kind of the social aspect to, to planning and communities. So when we're thinking about places, when we're thinking about land uses, we're thinking about how it affects how you live, how it affects those social spaces where people come together as well. And what sort of ways do we engage different community input and, and reach out to make sure that different voices are heard around the projects that we're building? That's great. So um, this actually is a cornerstone of the Moose program which was birthed out of the CDC um, and the CDC's kind of interest in what has become a bit of a mantra and kind of like leading with curiosity. Um, and so as we ask questions about what our communities can be and what they can become, um, we oftentimes found, unfortunately, that when we had community engagement efforts, young people like our, yourselves didn't seem to feel invited or for that matter, comfortable speaking up in those spaces. And so we decided that it was important for us to create dedicated efforts to reach out to young people in the communities they're already living in, um, talking about the issues that they're already dealing with, and for that matter, ironically, finding out that the lens of young people's perspectives on what's happening on the ground and streets of their neighborhoods was actually not just useful to young people, but useful to all of us. Um, one kind of paradigm here I think is kind of useful in this category that I think is all sometimes interesting to think about is that um, as, as many young high schoolers are here in the room, um, there's pro uh, this is a bit of a paradigm as compared to like millennials and like, you know, older people, um, even than that, um, is that like, uh, it was like a big milestone to look forward to getting like a driver's license when we were in high school. Um, many of the young people I talk with today actually have very little interest in even driving. They prefer like other forms of micromobility and things of that nature. This approach to transportation is very important for the future of cities, and young people are just naturally interested in it. And so, um, so that being said, like, I, I, I'm, what I mean to kind of imply is maybe an extension of the question is that um, one of the ways we have reached out to young people is creating programs like the Moose program. However, one of the outcomes is realizing that we actually have massive blind spots in our efforts for planning if we don't make sure that everyone's a part of the conversation. Awesome. So some parts that we were touching on related specifically to transportation, and it seems that in urban development, transportation might play a critical role in shaping the future of our environment. In what ways can we expect a more sustainable city or idealize that sort of scenario through transportation? Well, one of the projects that we've been talking about at our office uh, is around transit-oriented development. Uh, and Transit-oriented development is development along transit lines that's mixed use and, and walkable. And that's a long way of saying you can think about buildings like this, where you've got different activities happening upstairs versus on the first floor. You might have retail on the first floor. People live on uh, the upstairs. You can walk directly out the front door. You're on a sidewalk. We've got the health line. You can walk to the red line, the blue or the green line. Um, this is a transit-oriented development. but uh, we don't build these that often anymore. 
the type of development that we allow throughout our region uh, tends to be uh, huge parking lots, retail set back from the street, uh, so that walking to and from a place becomes that much more difficult. Imagine getting off a bus and you're directly at the front door, directly at your destination, versus getting off of a bus where you've got a thin sidewalk, you have to walk across a parking lot that's not shoveled, uh, where you walk into a single building to get whatever you need, and then if it doesn't have something and you need to go somewhere else, that walk is gonna be a quarter mile to the next place. That's time, uh, that's energy. It makes it very unlikely that you want to walk. This comes back to transportation because we've created a system where the ability to get around is basically by car. And if you wanna get around by bike or walking, if like many of the high schoolers here, you may not have uh, a driver's license, if you don't want one, if you don't have access to a car, how do you get around? We're building an environment that makes it incredibly difficult for you to do so. So what we're working on is trying to fix the development so that getting around in other forms that aren't just the vehicle, in other more sustainable forms, uh, is possible. You know, the scooters are fun, but I think you have to be 18 in order to uh, borrow are supposed to be 18. Um, I, I think that, you know, kind of one of the challenges is, though in cities like Cleveland is that the infrastructure networks that we have to maintain were designed for a much larger population. Cleveland used to have almost a million people, and so there's this kind of question of extra roads and sewers and water lines, and they're not really extra because you can't just start kind of clipping them away. The whole system would sort of fall apart if you did that. Um, but it becomes really challenging, you know, to kind of manage an effective transit network to be able to maintain this large roadway network because we do have fewer people and by extension less tax revenue, which is how you maintain those systems in the first place. So I think that's one of the creative challenges that, you know, kind of the city and the region are beginning to tackle. And I think it's probably one of the most important things on the horizon in terms of, you know, kind of urban development. Good point. Um, I think actually this is an interesting subject, really well um, considered question. Um, because actually like, uh, I think perhaps maybe even one of the most significant concerns that we have to be looking forward to in the future, or near future of urban planning and urban design have to do with you know, how we think about populations and the opportunities provided to them, um, specifically as we think about intergenerational changes that to what degree um, are um, people's futures predicted by the accident of their birth um, and being able to try to change that, perhaps even hack that through the lens of how we design our built environment, the urban spaces that we live in, uh, which will be where the majority of us live, um, and at least if the statistics have anything to say about it in urban spaces. Um, on the other hand, also the nature of even new technology um, as it relates to, uh, to transportation. We, we've all experienced even like even recent years, like the cities having to catch up with their legislation as to how we deal with scooters just because they showed up so quickly. Um, we're also seeing that as it relates to like Tesla motor vehicles and other electrification of transportation and automation. Um, what's interesting to me is we talk about transportation and we also talk about equity as it relates to opportunity is that the term used in both these categories is actually mobility. Mobility of, people, uh, of people's opportunities from generation to generation, intergenerational mobility, as well as transportation mobility. And so like, um, what's, I, I think some of the allegories we use for both actually lend us to similar types of thinking. So for example, if you might think about mobility as a problem for equity, 
then you might also then kind of lend to questions about like, um, it, why, how, how does equity relate to opportunity? So, um, so for example, if you asked someone if they wanted a job, the offer of the job is directly contingent on the expectation that they can get to that job. We know that through transportation. It just so happens that that same kind of language actually also exists as we think about intergenerational opportunities. That if you want, if someone said, if you give someone the offer to go to a school, the reality is the statistics very much um, are oftentimes in contrast to the expectation that even though someone is admitted to that school, that they actually have the means by which to get into that school. This is an experience many of you guys probably have already thought about as you think about where you're applying for colleges right now is the opportunity is oftentimes independent from the means or mobility by which you get to acquire that opportunity. Hopefully that makes some sense. And so in that regard, I think the subject of mobility and the subject of transportation has a lot to do with how we think about populations as a whole as well as how we design our cities. Could I add one thing onto that? Because I think that question of equity when it comes to transportation is really interesting. Uh, and I, I focused on transit and other mobility options because I think that's really important and a key aspect for environmental issues as well. But uh, one of the shifts that we're seeing coming up right now that's being pushed by the federal government as well as local forms of government is a push towards electric vehicles. Uh, those are going to be really important to addressing emissions, for instance. But when it comes to equity, to your point, um, there's going to be a lot of challenges that we're going to need to face. Uh, if you have a garage and you have an electric vehicle and you need to charge it, you can build a charger in your garage. What do you do for somebody who parks on the street? What do you do for someone who lives in a lower, uh, uh, lower cost housing situation where they are renting and they don't have an assigned parking spot? How are you going to charge that vehicle? Or are we going to force those who uh, are living in uh, lower income situations to not be able to have an electric vehicle? So when we think about some of those forms of progress, we're going to need to address those issues as we're looking to foster inclusivity and equity overall, it seems like public spaces might be a good place to start. What strategies do we have in terms of urban? Sure, I'll jump into <laughs> this one. <laughs> public spaces are critical. It's places uh, like the City Club that create forums where people can come together and have these conversations. Public spaces are increasingly becoming a catalyst for urban development because people are looking for places where they can interact with one another. We've developed spaces that are so disconnected, that are so far apart, that don't have those opportunities where you run into strangers and where you have conversations that is, you know, for a democratic society, that's not the best. We need to create those places, but they also are places that have an economic development component. So uh, I think, Places like the city of Shaker Heights that have included public spaces as part of the Van Aken district. Uh, that's a really good example of how we can incorporate public aspects, public realm into larger development patterns. Uh, Shaker Square is an original example locally. How do we create those places where people can come together? Uh, I, I do think it's a really important aspect of the future. And it also depends on sort of who that public you're referring to is. Um, you know, and I think especially in terms of the work we do with young people, sometimes public spaces are designed to intentionally include, include and exclude certain groups, and it's, it's really challenging. We were working up in the campus district um, around a green space study, 
And there are all kinds of questions about folks who during the day don't have any place else to be, you know? And so how do you design in an intentional way um, to make people feel like they're inhabiting a public space rather than loitering. Same thing at Public Square. I mean, before Public Square was transformed, um, it was a gathering space for a lot of people from across the socioeconomic spectrum. And so I think some of the design choices that get made, you know, kind of are really sort of focused toward certain groups. and sometimes at the expense of others. What we see in some interesting public spaces is that different groups claim them at different times. So, you know, kind of in the after school hours, you know, kind of a space might be full of teenagers, which is a really fun time to visit because your vocabulary expands really broadly when you kind of listen to people's conversations. But, you know, so, I mean, you know, maybe there's not a kumbaya world where we all feel comfortable together in one space, but if we design spaces in a flexible way so that they appeal, um, to the broadest possible segment of, you know, kind of our populations, then, you know, kind of maybe we get to that inclusivity in a different way. I love that, actually. I think that's actually even a uniquely, like, situated potential within urban planning and urban design. Um, earlier, Patrick mentioned the kind of, like, adjacent design fields, like architecture. Um, I love architecture. Actually, my history is technically in architecture in terms of my academic interests and study. Um, but one of the weaknesses of architecture is it's programmed. Um, by that I mean if you build a bank, it's not a house. If you build a house, it's not a market. And so that is kind of necessary um, for code and other various different things we won't get into. But as you might imagine, you probably don't want to live in a bank vault. You'd rather live in a bedroom. And it so there's something cozy. about <laughs> and, so, uh, and so there's some things about the expressly exclusive quality of architecture that are a virtue within the space of its profession. However, in urban planning and design, um, there, there isn't quite that same predisposition. As a matter of fact, it's almost a presupposition of urban planning that there will be some measure of collective reasoning and decision making. Um, urban planners in, intrinsically are creating opportunities for other professions to fill in the plans that they create for the larger spaces and urban spaces that they have in mind. And so in that regard, I do think that it, although architects can definitely work to be more inclusive just as well as any other design profession, there's something in, intrinsic to the nature of urban design and urban planning that is interested in public efforts and more generalist approaches that allow for inclusivity to be a norm. Terry mentioned earlier that perhaps a uniquely Cleveland problem is the decades of population decline. And with that comes its own sort of challenges. What are they? How can we solve them? I would just clarify it's not a uniquely Cleveland problem. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of there's a whole cohort of cities, older industrial cities in the Great Lakes region that are all experiencing this challenge. And I would also suggest um, you know, kind of that it goes beyond those kind of stereotypical Rust Belt cities at this point. I was really fascinated during the pandemic when I was watching the news from New York and San Francisco and other, you know, kind of what we normally think of as thriving cities suddenly experiencing things like, um, you know, vacant storefronts and unused office buildings. I'm like, hey, yeah, been there. <laughs> so I think that it's not unique in the sense that, you know, kind of a lot of cities at one time or another are going to experience fluctuations in population and in real estate demand. And I think that there's a lot that cities like Cleveland can kind of teach 
the country and the world, um, particularly if you watch where demographics are going nationally. Um, you know, we might see, at least in your lifetime, you know, kind of some significant population decline in a lot more cities. And so how we manage these transitions becomes really, really important. Not that I have the answer to that, but there have been a lot of experiments and a lot of you know, kind of prototypes tested here in Cleveland and in Detroit and Philadelphia, Buffalo. Um, I think that those models are going to pay off with, as soon as we you know, can kind of get a handle on um, you know, what can be scaled. Um, there's a lot of sort of one-off projects that can you know, kind of transform a vacant or underutilized site, but how do we take it up to the scale of the city and have something that feels urban and productive at the end of the day? And what do we learn from this past history of addressing urban vacancy and office vacancy? And One that it's harder than it looks, right? I mean, the city of Cleveland probably has upwards of 30,000 vacant lots. Camelot, correct me if I'm wrong on that. <laughs> um, but, you know, kind of more than half uh, plus or minus are in a land bank. So it is one area where Cleveland does have a unique strength. It's not just that we have a lot of land, but we have land held in the public domain, which means that if we wanted to reinvent and reimagine the city in a really fundamental way, it's not about land acquisition necessarily because we already have control of the land, but it is about configuration. So the one thing we know is when a city grows, it expands its footprint and develops along it. But when a city loses population, it's a lot less rational. So if you look at where land is, it's not always where you want it to be and in the right configuration. Probably the one thing, you know, kind of I think most people would agree that we've learned from the process is that bigger is better when it comes to um, vacant land um, because you have more opportunities when you have one big chunk of land as opposed to 100 scattered parcels. It's much more challenging to kind of manage that configuration. Um, I would add some of my wonderful colleagues at the Planning Commission uh, looked at two maps, one from 1948 and one from 2002. Uh, and they looked at the developed area of Cuyahoga County uh, between those two time periods. And they picked those, one, because we had a map from 1948. Um, <laughs> but two, because the population of Cuyahoga County in 1950 and in 2000 was almost exactly the same, just under 1.4 million people. Um, but the developed land had increased from 25% in 1950 to 90% of land in Cuyahoga County was developed in 2000. So we have the same number of people living in more than triple the amount of developed space. That has huge challenges that Terry pointed out earlier. Um, one of the things that communities are doing is now that the market is shifting a little bit, now that there's some level of demand as housing prices have gone up, is try to go back to some of the vacant land in areas that were previously built. The first suburbs, the city of Euclid are both here. They're doing that right now. In addressing the challenges that we've created to building on land that is vacant right now, one of the big challenges is zoning. There was a house in South Euclid uh, that was recently constructed by the, our friends at the land bank that looked like every other house on the street. But the zoning for that lot uh, wouldn't have it would not have allowed it to be built. They had to get some variances to build a house that looked like everything else. We've created some barriers on, on the governmental level, on the planning level, that we can address now to help uh, reintroduce, infill, reintroduce development in some of these communities that already exist. Can you clarify for our audience what the role of the land bank is within this whole process? Hey. Sure, we'll just get Camlin to come up here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So the, the land bank 
uh, is an organization that uh, takes ownership of land that is in foreclosure, that's behind on their taxes. Um, a lot of this came out of the uh, issues from the 2008, 2009, 2010 financial crises where people were walking away from homes where they owed more on the house than it was worth. Banks were taking them over uh, and were in control of those homes, but they weren't taking care of those houses either. So who was going to uh, take ownership of those homes? The land bank did. It was a new creation uh, where they take ownership of those houses. Often that meant that they demolished the home that was there. Uh, so now own some of these vacant lots. In the first suburb, there's 5,300 vacant lots uh, that are in single-family zoned areas. That's a huge opportunity for new housing. That's a huge opportunity to reinvest in neighborhoods where people live, to build up property values, especially in neighborhoods where property values have plummeted. These are often in minority communities uh, where people invested in their home because they thought that they would get something out of it, and property values didn't maintain uh, the trajectory that they were on. Uh, so the land bank owns many of those lots, and we see that as an opportunity. It's one of the reasons we've partnered with the land bank. If you had magical powers, what are the ideal urban reforms that we would add to our city? Oh, magical powers. <laughs> you guys have magical powers. <laughs> um, I would say that, you know, kind of a thoughtful strategy about where to develop and where not to. It gets to some of the other questions, you know, kind of that you've been talking about, Luke, in the sense that, you know, kind of the land itself tells us something about what should and shouldn't be there. You know, when cities grow rapidly, everything gets built upon. Cleveland, if you could envision it before it developed, um, was um, a city with rivers, creeks, streams, all leading into the Cuyahoga and the lake, and all that is gone. It got erased through development. What we learn a lot through the mapping, actually, that Dan Meany and the county have done, is that you know, kind of the land is telling us, the soil and the hydrology are telling us, these are good places for buildings. If you put buildings here, um, they won't get destroyed by flooding as easily. You know, if you um, choose not to build in these locations, it's protecting the health of the Great Lakes um, and the Great Lakes Basin. Um, so I think that that's one of the things I would love to see is more strategic thinking at the regional scale about where we want to live and how we want to live and how we configure, you know, kind of land use and development so that we are allowing for people to live here and people to move here, but at the same time protecting some of those natural systems that too often we forget exist and just ignore. I, I actually think it's a, another good question. Um, and oftentimes forgotten realization that like one of the things that urban planners do is help consult with um, cities to help develop new forms of rules that govern how our cities are developed. And um, maybe by analogy, I think that rules, although it seems like a lame subject, uh, <laughs> um, are, can actually be kind of compelling if we think it through the lens of like even like the sports that we play. Uh, the character of the sports we play at times is kind of derivative of the rules. So if you like a lot of physical contact, football might be for you. However, if you like taking long walks in green pastures, maybe golf is the game to play. And uh, the difference between them is the rules. Um, and so in some regard, when we think about the kind of rules as almost kind of reverse engineering the cities we want to live in, there's a lot of opportunity to be had there. So, and I think it specifically, this is a conversation I love to have with young people as we think about like, well, what are the places and spaces that we most feel we belong in and the places and spaces we want to have exist when we get there? Because the reality is we talk about housing policy, 
It takes a while for that policy to go through and even longer than for the buildings to be built, by which time it's you guys who will be living in them, not me. Um, and so like, uh, when we think about like, these kinds of rules, I think actually one of the maybe you know, magical rules I would love to have is one that deals more with kind of the expectation that something almost like Tom's shoes, that like, just when we go buy shoes, we know we're helping someone. We don't have to spend a lot of time making sure it happens. I almost wish that our housing supply was kind of like that, that like whenever we bought a house, the rules were just baked in such that there are other community benefits that came out of it. I wish that our cities took these kinds of legislations more seriously. Um, I, I think rules are things that can change and we had some really great ideas in the 1950s uh, and we also had some really terrible ideas in the 1950s as urban planners uh, that we aren't gonna see the effects of. Uh, so I don't know if I have a magical rule that I would wanna change, but what I would really like to change is the per self-perception that greater Clevelanders have of ourselves. We have an amazing county and city. We have talked to other communities, we've been to other places from the County Planning Commission, uh, and when we look, for instance, at our transit network or our, our urban layout of streets, there are other places that could only dream of some of the amenities that we have. That view of the lake is something that other places simply don't have. And sometimes I think we need to step back and remember, we've got a lot of really great things that we can build from here, and we need to believe in ourselves and really recognize uh, all of the assets that we've got. Awesome. Looks like now we're gonna transition into our Q&A portion. <clears throat> Good afternoon, my name is Kayla Broom, junior at Cleveland School of Science and Medicine and a member of our Cleveland Club Youth Forum Council. Today we've been enjoying a youth forum entitled Sustainable Urban Future Futures, Navigating Economic Equality and Climate Resilience, featuring Ben Hearn, coordinator of Cleveland Urban Design Collaboratives, Making Our Own Space at Kent State University. Patrick Herwip, Planning Manager of Strategy and Development at the Cuyahoga County Planning Commission and Terry Swartz, Director of the Urban Design Collaborative at Kent State University, Cleveland. Moderating today's conversation has been Youth Forum Council Member Luke Kim. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, city club members, students, educators, or those of you joined via our webcast. We ask that our questions please be brief, to the point, and end in a question mark. <laughs> If you are joining us via webcast and would like to ask a question or text us at 330-541-5794. And we ask that we will ask as time allows. Today's microphones are two of our youth forum council members, Zoe and Ishan. Can we please have our first question? Hello there. Thank you for your time. Um, in Peter Moskowitz's book, How to Kill a City, there's a really strong emphasis on where the focus lies in the city and uh, whether you're trying to attract new people and how dangerous that could be. So, and when you talk about things like land use and then gentrification, that is a very long conversation. So my specific question is, how do we, when we see vacancies and trying to fill those vacancies, how do we uplift the people who are here right now while still fulfilling that overarching goal of growth? That is a really difficult question. That's, uh, and it's actually a conversation that 
we've had in our office uh, quite a bit, especially as we're working in some communities where uh, new development might be taking place on uh, previously vacant land. Uh, I think the question around public space is really important. I think the question about community building is really important. Um, we also think, you, you brought up the word gentrification, uh, we've got a really bifurcated housing market that's taking place here in Cuyahoga County where we've got a lot of very uh, expensive housing and a lot of housing that is very undervalued. Um, how we find a middle ground uh, between those two going forward is a big challenge. One of the things we've talked about is all of that vacant land that we do have because of the issues with the housing crisis. How can we use that uh, in a way that is thoughtful so that not all of that land might be used for market rate housing, but we're using it for other types of housing as a proportion so that we can create those mixed income communities. Um, planners also have a role to play, but at some point we need to make spaces where community can come together and where people here can create the organizations and the relationships so that we have those sticky communities where people uh, want to remain, where they have those networks. Hi, my name is Sudi. I'm a senior at Solon High School. So we all know that Cleveland has a really big homelessness crisis. So my question is, why is that crisis existing when we have so many vacancies in urban development? And because of that crisis, how is the future of urban development kind of changing to fix that? So when you would think that, you know, just mathematically, right, you have people who need housing and you have surplus housing and land, why can't we just put those two things together and solve the problem? It's never quite as easy as that. Um, a lot of times, um, you know, kind of there are a range of services that people need in order to not only become, you know, kind of homeowners or renters, but also to like maintain that condition. Um, it's, it's a tough challenge and it does feel like something we should be able to resolve because especially in this climate, I mean, for someone who's unsheltered, it's not just an inconvenience, it's a death sentence in some situations. And so, I mean, there are a lot of agencies who are doing remarkable work, um, but, you know, kind of Cleveland is not unique in experiencing this problem. In the end, I mean, it comes down to capitalism, really, um, and not to go all, you know, kind of <laughs> socialist on you, but I mean, unless we as a society are willing to commit resources to make sure that everybody has the basics of life, access to food, access to health care, and access to housing, then, you know, kind of if we don't make that commitment, um, these challenges are going to persist and most likely grow. Next question. Um, so with an increase in urbanization rates, uh, not just in the United States, but all across the world, how might we promote um, new technologies or legislation that can lead to a more climate resilient future? I think that's a really impressive question. Um, I think particularly impressive because uh, the choice of the word technology. Um, I think traditionally as we've thought about technology, we think about um, objects, we think about things that produce outcomes, um, but I think it's also no less significant for us to consider, especially at the advent of artificial intelligence, is thinking about systems of communication as a form of technology. Um, and to the degree that that's true, I think that we can also begin to think about 
um, ideas and the re-engineering of our past paradigms as a means by which we make new futures accessible and tenable uh, to young people like yourselves as well as to old people like ourselves. Um, that, that like, um, we were actually just talking about this in the green room, so Luke and you guys used to hang out or something, but uh, um, that uh, one of the questions that came up was a concern about how we think about uh, economics itself um, and how that compares to natural systems. Um, so to try to be brief on this point, um, both economics and ecology as a study have traditionally thought about the things they study as being relatively pure. Um, so for example, if you studied a uh, economy of a city, there was a lot of individual businesses and individual people making decisions and there was very little blurry lines in between them. Or if you thought about an ecology, you thought about you know, this plant, that plant, that bird, that organism, all kind of individually operating, there is very little spectrum between them. Um, we know better now. We know that actually, as a matter of fact, when we study ecologies, when we study nature and other ecosystems, that we are a part of that ecosystem. Um, and even now, we would actually, many people would argue that people are the most significant agent or factor in the future of how the world changes, um, hence words like Anthropocene. So to answer your question in some way that with that kind of a framework that's a little bit more direct, I think that um, one of the ways that we begin to make, make use technology and use ideas to help develop potential futures that are more sustainable has a lot to do with re-evaluating how we even think of our, our part in the system as a whole. Um, and so uh, ecology now, if you go to major schools in New York, um, no longer think of urban systems as independent from ecology and independent from environments, but rather urban ecology is something you can study now, that the city is an ecosystem and we're aware of that. And the more we study that, the more we can be effective, we can effectively change the variables that change our future. Um, oh, sorry. Um, All right. um, can everyone hear me okay? Yep. <laughs> okay, um, my name is Dejan Lee. I am a junior at MC STEM. My question to you all, um, as everyone knows about the North Shore Har Harbor Project coming, um, how they're planning to build a bridge near downtown. Um, I just want to know your, all of your thoughts on that. And since we are referencing, um, um, since we are referring to um, um, urban safety and stuff, uh, or just, I forgot the term for that. But since we are referring to um, this thing, it is a very important thing we need to talk about. So I wanted to hear, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. So the bridge to the lakefront is one component of a much broader project, and I say project loosely because it's many different people touching this, of trying to better connect to our lake. Uh, I, see, uh, I, I see folks from the city of Euclid. Um, that city has a wonderful project, uh, which created miles of new lakefront access uh, from Sims Park heading east uh, that created a vision of how we can get people down to the lakefront that didn't exist before. Uh, the Cheers Project from Metro Parks is going to create new land uh, around East 55th Street to create parks in areas that didn't previously exist. Uh, Edgewater being taken over by the Metro Parks on the west side. 
These are all examples of lakefront investments that are incredibly important. The downtown lakefront, I think, has always been uh, one of the missing pieces. It is really important. We need to make sure that we get the land uses along the lakefront right. The city of Cleveland uh, is doing a great job on thinking through that. But I, I wanted to put it in context of we've got miles of lake in Cuyahoga County, and we need to be thinking about all of those different connections as well. I'd just like to add that I'm so excited to have a mildly controversial opinion about this. Uh, maybe we can start a little bit of a brawl uh, or not. Um, Hopefully not. I'm ready. No, I'm I mean, I'm all for connectivity, right? Linking people to our two waterfronts are critical and important. And good cities offer options, different ways to connect here and there. The only thing I would encourage all of you, especially you know the young ones among us, to think about are this kind of economic concept of opportunity costs. If we do one really big, really expensive thing, what are all the other things that we can't do because so many resources are devoted to that one thing? And while I think that the land bridge across the shoreway and the tracks will be a really iconic project, help with you know what Patrick was describing about our image of the city and our self-esteem, I can think of dozens of better ways to spend money that would impact people's lives more, more people's lives more directly um, in the near future. And so, you know, I have to say, of all the projects going on, that's not the one that gets my heart going. I'm glad it's moving forward. I love a big gesture, but I really think about a lot of ways um, that we really need to knit the city and the entering suburbs together and to the waterfronts in ways that are maybe smaller but more impactful. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll respond because I think that that's really important. Uh, one of the benefits that we see from Metro Parks taking over Edgewater, uh, the management and stewardship of Edgewater, has been what that's meant for the neighborhoods around it. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that, that I mentioned some of those other lakefront projects is because they do have a, a more immediate benefit to neighborhoods that already exist in places like Euclid, in places like Glenville and uh, St. Clair Superior, and those parks as a catalyst to reinvest in some neighborhoods that have seen disinvestment over the past uh, is really important. 100% agree, but we're coming off this sugar rush of all this federal funding that True. for the first time, at least in my career, I've seen major federal, federal resources pouring into cities as a way to help recover from the pandemic. But as those dollars get expended, it's gonna go back to the real world where we have to make tough decisions every day about what's the most important thing. And that circles back to the question you started about, Luke, which is who's at the table making those decisions? Whose voices matter? And how can we make sure that particularly, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of among the youngest residents of our region, that your voices are heard and that your priorities are made clear? Now we can get to your question. Uh, I'm Amir Odin, freshman at Cleveland Heights High School. I was wondering, knowing that Cleveland and Cuyahoga County's transportation systems have been increasingly harder to get to. So in your mind, I was wondering, how would you, what, cha what changes would you make to improve Cleveland and Cuyahoga's Cuyahoga County's public transit system to be easier to access or use? It's a really good question. Um, frequency is incredibly important uh, to making transit worthwhile. If you miss a bus and the next one doesn't come for 30 minutes, that is far more disruptive to your life, to your job, to your, to your ability to access amenities and activities than if it comes five minutes later. Um, frequency is really important. 
Uh, however, uh, that comes with money. And the problem has been over the past uh, 70 years or so that our population has been shrinking. Uh, and that means that we need to spend, excuse me, we need to increase our tax rate to be able to get the funds to be able to provide the services that we need. Uh, one of the things that we need to do is grow our tax base, grow our uh, ability to raise funds to provide these services um, in whatever manner we are going to need to do that. That might mean population increase. It might mean uh, thinking strategically about uh, which part of the county is going to be a focus to create those nodes of, of potential growth. Um, so public transit, critical. I take it every day. I took it uh, this morning. Um, that frequency is really is really critical, uh, and the land use component that we've been focusing on, I think, makes uh, public transit more accessible because it actually gets you to places that you want to go more quickly. Um, hi, I'm Min Sung Hong. I'm a freshman from Seoul in High School. Um, so what has struck me about this topic is that when I've been to some other countries, such as like South Korea, I noticed that the way that the cities were designed were so different. Um, like how you guys mentioned before, you could like, the first floor of a building is like a restaurant, and the second floor is like a doctor's office, and the third floor is a hair salon. And when I returned to America, it would hit me that like, the way that our cities are constructed seems so ineffective, just in terms of time and the environment and resources. So I was wondering, like, what has prevented us from designing our cities in a more effective way? So good. So good. I might say that it's more than just that. I mean, if you step back in time, I grew up in Chicago. So when I moved to Cleveland, it was very much like you see it today with some, you know, kind of changes since then. But if you go way back to Cleveland, there used to be these interurban trains where you could hop on a train and get to Illyria or, you know, kind of Lorraine. And these kind of things we just threw away. The trolley system, it's why we have all these wide streets around here, um, is because we used to have this system that would get people conveniently, um, you know, kind of to nearby, um, nearby cities and nearby destinations. And we really, we threw that away um, and prioritized driving over transit. And it's hard to get it back. Um, so the lesson learned there is don't throw away something that you think might be useful in the future. Um, and then the changes that have happened in Cleveland and other cities over the decades didn't happen overnight. It's like one decision at a time. So the only thing I can say here is that we can then start making decisions one at a time to begin to move back toward um, the kinds of cities that we want to realize. Because it's not just youth, right? Cleveland's an aging, greater Cleveland is an aging community. And so as people get older and lose um, the ability to safely drive, you know, kind of having a system where you can walk or take transit safely is going to help people comfortably age in place. And if we don't start taking action on that um, soon, um, we're going to be experiencing big problems as our, you know, they talk about the silver tsunami as people move into their older years. They're probably not going to be enough assisted living and supportive housing opportunities for everybody who needs them. So we really need to be thinking and acting on transforming our, you know, kind of urban neighborhoods in ways that allow people to age in place. Because if we don't, it's really going to harm people's quality of life. 
I think this is, I think even the way you situated your question, I've like lost you, you sat down, um, <laughs> so, is really uh, clever um, to recognize the distinction in place and the cultural kind of in, uh, implications of the people groups where build, the built environment is kind of cultivated from. Um, and so in, in that regard, I think maybe one way I would kind of respond to your question in terms of the history of how we got here is that um, one of the Western world's strong kind of cultural convictions is to do things kind of like what we're doing today is put like professionals on a podium and like listen to what they have to say. Um, <laughs> and so like we kind of have this expectation that like if we're going to make things right, we need a professional to tell us what to do. Not everyone in the world thinks that way. As a matter of fact, I would even say the very nature of like what we're doing right now like is an, uh, an example of that. That it takes a designer to design a chair but it doesn't take a designer to sit in one. Like every opinion in this room as to the, the comfort of the seat in which you're in right now is a valid one, a legitimate one, and one that should be taken into consideration if as a designer we design a better chair for all of us, right? And so in the same way as we think about cities, I think there's a real uh, potential opportunity for us to you know, look at the rest of the world and consider ways in which we may then live and moreover, I think one of the things that kind of gets exciting to me about that is when I hear someone like yourself ask a question of this nature, is it helps us to even become aware the more that we have young people in these conversations, uh, that there are opportunities that we may actually enjoy that we just haven't considered and that as a consequence we haven't taken action upon. So to come back to the nature of your question, how do we get here? Um, that long history of interest in professionals includes names like Le Corbusier, um, names like, you know, in the positive, I guess, actually, names like writers that came from Chicago, um, as well as, for that matter, architects who kind of wore the hat of being urban planners, um, many of whom made singular decisions to design entire cities um, in the interest of the vision of the objects, the buildings that they wanted to design. Um, but now that we have the opportunity and means by which to bring a lot more opinions in, like we can even have virtual conversations post-pandemic, our ability to communicate with a lot of people at once and bring a lot of opinions to the table is kind of a new technology in a sense that allows us to upend the expectation of our cultural predisposition that we need a professional to tell us what to do. That actually I think one of the solutions is exactly what we're doing now in another sense is making sure that young people are part of the conversation and making sure the diverse set of conversations are had before we make big decisions. I'll tell you from my chair, the view is pretty good. <laughs> it's all right. If I could add on to this, because this, it is a great question, and it can be frustrating to go to places where you see that vibrancy, you see what you described retail on the first floor and housing above, and not feel it where you're at, where, where you are. One of the reasons that it exists in, in addition to all of these great points is that we've set up rules to require it to not exist. So we at the County Planning Commission in our work looked at uh, 22 transit corridors of, that cover 26 communities. And we asked along those transit corridors, could you build a building that is up close to the street, that's multiple stories, where residential could be located above retail, where there would be limited parking, and where you could cover a lot of the lots? Five basic questions. Only 5% of the land in that area was zoned in a manner that lets you build the type of building that you just described. The other 95% of land has some sort of existing codified regulation that says that's going to be a problem for you. We are already working to help change those. We're coming up with model zoning uh, that can fix that. Communities themselves are already doing it. The city of Cleveland recently updated 
their uh, transportation demand management regulations. It's a lot of words to say you don't need to have parking close to, build, or, uh, close to transit lines. So we're, we're also creating some, some changes at the regulatory level to address the issue that you're describing. Next question. Um, hello, my name is Julian Hunter, but you all, all know me by now. Okay, so my question is, I'm concerned about safety or considerations. Do your brand planners use as their plan or communities? Sorry, could you repeat that? Okay, move my question. I'm concerned about safety. What considerations do urban planners use as they plan our communities? That's a really good question. Uh, safety is, is critical. It's something that uh, we hear about a lot. And there's two ways that we think about safety. One is uh, specific safety measures like police, um, like kind of police forces, uh, security systems and cameras, that sort of thing. Um, those go into plans. They're a critical part of what cities to think about. But the other piece of that is how do you create places, uh, we were talking before we started about Jane Jacobs, where there are these eyes on the street, where there's a lot of people around. You tend to uh, feel more comfortable. You tend to feel safer. There tends to be uh, less issues when you have uh, some feeling that there's other people, that there's somebody watching you uh, in a good way, right? That there's some element of people around that are going to make you second guess whether or not you want to do something like spray paint a wall, right? If there's somebody around, maybe you're not going to do that in front of somebody else. Uh, so those two ways that we think about safety are really critical, uh, both from the very specific kind of police and enforcement aspect and then from creating places where there are other people where you uh, have that societal pressure to you know, act in an appropriate manner. Yeah, but I do think we're in a different world right now. I mean, changing every day, but the fact that like any public place where people gather, um, there's you know, kind of what feels like an accelerating risk of gun violence. I mean, just yesterday, I mean, it, it's like a week doesn't pass where you don't hear something. Um, you know, kind of where people are hurt and killed um, due to gun violence. And I think that, you know, kind of the toolkit that planners have is just insufficient to begin to address those kinds of challenges. Um, you can have all the police in the world and it's not going to stop something. Didn't seem to help in Kansas City. Um, the other component around safety that also has me really worried is traffic safety. Um, people kind of chalk it up to the pandemic that people during um, COVID just forgot how to drive. There were so few cars on the road, and now that we're sort of back to a normal, normalish situation, um, that the like lawlessness on the roads, which I can attest to. I'm a bike commuter, and there are days when I kind of question that decision, uh, just based on the behavior of drivers on the road. Um, so I think between you know, kind of car safety, traffic safety, and, and gun violence, these are enormous challenges, and I wish I had, you know, kind of useful responses, but I don't. Sorry, that's a bummer. Let's talk about something yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe one positive. Like, okay, thanks, Ben. Is, um, <laughs> small thing, is that like, uh, and this might seem like a bit of a recurring theme as it relates to kind of communal involvement. 
Um, I would say something that also should be added to the conversation of safety is, um, is, is the cultural implication and lens of it. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I did a, uh, I don't know, I, I'm not sure if it's a matter of fact, that's probably a necessary segue. Um, I have a friend of mine um, who has dedicated his life in a small region of Chattanooga, T Tennessee, where there's a significant number of immigrant populations, um, many of whom are not yet registered. So as a consequence, the traditional means of acquiring safety, calling the police, is not a tenable opportunity for them. And so as a consequence, there's other means and mechanisms by which simply reinforcing the kind of uh, communal ties within our neighborhoods that create other means of, of communication and the safety therein. Uh, another way of thinking about safety in that respect as it relates to the communities we belong to and the means in which we can actually be responsible for our neighbors and participate in creating safe communities, I think also has to do with the nature of, of heat, um, specifically in places uh, like Cleveland and other urban regions where the, the built environment creates a significant heat concentrations in our like downtown centers, um, that like community centers are actually an opportunity for safety, a safe space in hot environments where people can avoid physical harm that just comes from the environment, not necessarily from other people. Yeah. Um, as well as for that matter, even thinking about safety through the lens of you know, like obviously major medical conditions and concerns like we've had throughout the pandemic. Um, that language of we're all in this together obviously is kind of a mantra that's become almost like so cliche, it's hard to even understand what it means. I do think on some level though, there is a reality to that um, that many of us real, uh, quickly realized that our roommate was a, big, a more important asset than they ever were before the pandemic and the nature of who was closest to us being someone we can su be supported by and support is a big part of promoting safety in our communities is just simply by participating and looking around who's closest to us and how we can help them. I'm glad we could end on a more hopeful note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for joining us today at the City Club of Cleveland for our Youth Forum Council panel entitled Sustainable Urban Futures, Navigating Economic Equality and Climate Resilience. Again, my name is Luke Kim, a junior at Solon High School. Thank you to our panelists, Ben Herring, Patrick Hewitt, and Terry Schwartz for taking the time out of your busy schedules to be here with us today. I would also like to extend a special thanks to the students from MC Squared STEM High School, Brookside High School, and Cleveland Heights High School for joining us today for our discussion. The Youth Forum Council would also like to thank our sponsors, Nordson, the George W. Codrington Charitable Foundation, AT&T, Martha Holden Jennings Foundation, and the Dorsey Michalski Trust for their continued support. If you enjoyed today's forum, we invite you to save the date for our next forum on Thursday, April 11th, to analyze how gun violence in our communities impacts our mental health. This will be our last youth forum of the school year, and we hope that you will join us to end our programming year strong. In addition, as Nathan mentioned earlier, the City Club's essay contest deadline has been extended to March 1st. For anyone interested in participating, please visit cityclub.org and click on the Students tab for more information. Educators in the room or listening to the forum today, if you are interested in bringing your student to future forums, please email arianasmith at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you panelists, students, and City Club attendees. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.